Blog Talk Radio. There's a direct relationship between having the businesses and being in prison. Go find an, see how many Asians you can find in American prisons. They ain't going to be in there. But 51% of your prison will be black because you don't, blacks don't have any businesses and industries. There's a direct link. Blacks won't practice group economics. Blacks won't practice group politics. If you don't practice, you're setting yourselves up. I told that five-story building. You're setting yourself to get wiped out. Understand the nature of race, which is economics. If you, if you build the first floor, it's economic. Build your businesses and your industries. Control buildings and industry, and put that pools in your money. And hold that money. And, it's a, and practice group economics <clears throat> with it. Arab and Asian money bounces 12 or 13 times for at least. Jewish money bounces 18 times. Black folk got to learn how to practice group economics. Black Americans spend every penny they get outside their own community. Then you take the money and the wealth that you get from that first floor and go to the second floor. The second floor is politics. You then take that money on the first floor and you control your politics. Black folk must quit allowing people to tell them to go out and vote. Vote for what? Nobody's going to do anything for black folk in politics. Politics is controlled by money. Major corporations who got the money. That's what controls politics. If you have no money, you have no say-so, you have no benefits coming. So you take your money and you control and you take your money on the first floor, you buy every politician on the second floor. And any politician you can't buy, you rent or lease them to get what you need. Then once you get the second floor under control with the politician, with your money, then you go to the third floor. The third floor is then is the police department and the court system. You take your money from the first floor and your politics on the second floor and you control the court system and the police department. Then the fourth floor, you t- the fourth floor then is media. You then take the money that you generate off the first floor from business and industries <clears throat> and you go after radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, and cable systems so that you can now inform and communicate with your own people. Right now, <clears throat> black folk only control less than 35 thousandths of 1% of the media in the United States. Out of 12,000 radio stations, black folk own about something like about 75 or 80. That's all. You own no cable systems. You don't have a daily newspaper. You have nothing of importance. You don't. You got about one black TV station. And you, so you can't communicate with your people. You can't inform your people. You can't do anything. You can have Rush Limbaugh and all the rest of the guys talking about racism all day long and bad-mouthing you and O'Reilly. They can talk, call black folk all kind of names all day long. What are you going to do? You can't respond. You can't even communicate with your own people because you, you don't have an economic base. 51% of all the prisons in the United States are black people. You know, even though you only make up 12% of the population. That's no accident. It's because you don't control the economics and the politics. And they're going to go after the weakest people they can get their hands on to incarcerate. That's the black folk. And what are you going to do in response to them when they, when they, over, when they, when they over incarcerate you? You're going to go out and have a march or demonstration. We're going to march. March for what? Who cares? Marching never changed anything. But first, financial fragility. Most American households did slightly better economically in 2015 than 2014, according to a recent survey by the Federal Reserve. 69% said they were living comfortably or doing okay, up from 65%. But 31% said they were either struggling to get by or just getting by, a figure that includes millions of middle-class Americans. In fact, it can be surprising to learn just which Americans continue to struggle. Judy Woodruff has the latest in our series with The Atlantic. By almost any measure, Neil Gabler has led a successful life. He's published respected biographies of Walt Disney, Barbara Streisand, and Walter Winchell, written for leading newspapers and magazines, taught at prestigious universities. 
He's a husband and the father of two daughters, now launched in their own successful careers. He lives in New York's Long Island enclave, the Hamptons, a place of natural beauty and mecca for wealth and celebrity. And yet, for years, Neil Gabler harbored a dark secret. It's very difficult. I'll tell you who it's really been difficult on is my wife. Being the writer that he is, Gabler decided to come to terms with his secret by writing about it. I never write about myself, so I didn't embark on this project saying, oh gosh, I can't wait to write about my own failures, which is basically what the article is about. But really the, the spring of this piece was reading a news item about the Federal Reserve Household Economic Survey in which they asked the question, if you had a $400 emergency, could you meet that emergency? And 47% of the respondents said that they couldn't meet that emergency without either having to borrow money or to sell something. And I read that item and I said to myself, well, who knew? But of course I knew because many, many times in my life, and not just in the distant past, but in the unfortunate present, I couldn't afford those $400. And that's the hard truth. Despite all his outward signs of success, Neil Gabler is frequently broke. His recent story in the Atlantic magazine brought widespread attention to that fact. Did you hesitate at all about bearing your personal life? Very much so. I'm not the kind of person who really likes to expose himself. But then that reluctance became part of the article itself. Because I coined the term in the article, financial impotence. And it struck me that talking about our financial situation is very much like men not wanting to talk about sexual impotence. It's just not something you do. It's an embarrassment. It's a shame. It's a humiliation. And financial problems are exactly the same thing. So I thought, perhaps I can help those people who feel shamed and embarrassed and humiliated and show them, look it, I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to, to expose all of my faults, all of my mistakes, all of my failures. You're not alone. What do you say, buddy? How's everything? <laughs> Hang it in there. Hang it in there. Gabler knew he wasn't alone even before writing the article due to weekly chats with Brian Brunges, an East Hampton butcher. Brian the butcher is my friend. He's a wonderful, easy guy to talk to. And gradually, over time, we'd talk about our financial situation. Very, very rare, particularly among men. And I remember one day especially, this is one of those periods where I didn't have the $400, and unfortunately they come all too frequently, and he said, I'm going to tell you something. He said, I've been in the same situation, I've got this expense and that expense. If anybody tells you that they're sailing through, they're lying. Everybody struggles. I have a child with autism. He was diagnosed 20 years ago. Okay? My wife had to stop working. Became a one-income one family. We accumulated a lot of outside expenses, so I struggled. But you know what? I got to do what I got to do. That was almost the, the final push to write the piece because, you know, he's right. Uh, there are so many people in trouble. They won't talk about it. Brian is one of the very few who would be open with me, and I was able to be open with him as a result. Um, so we were able to share this. It kind of like took a weight off my shoulder, knowing that a guy like Neil 
you know, he's got a house in East Hampton, you figure, eh, you know, he's doing all right for himself, but he's not. Everybody's struggling, you know, and it's, it's tough. The middle class is, is in desperate straits. I think that's Edward sort of, Wolf that's is a professor of economics line. at New York University. They, uh, today, the uh, average family has enough financial reserves to keep it going for about uh, three weeks. That's, that's, that's it. And that's, that's middle income. And if you go further down the ladder, basically uh, the financial reserves can keep the family going for, for a couple of days at most. And so, you know, these financial uh, reserves have just completely evaporated. It's, it's, it's incredible. We came up with this word, financial fragility, when we thought of looking at the capacity of families to bear a shock, to face a shock. Anne Maria Lusardi is an economist at George Washington University. And the way we formulated the question is, how confident are you that you could come up with $2,000 if unexpected need arose within the next month? And what we found is 40% of families could not come up with $2,000 in 30 days. So it's important to recognize that, that the financial fragility is just so widespread. The main reason is that we've had a long period of uh, wage stagnation in this country, even going further back, even to the mid-1970s. So in the face of uh, stagnating incomes, uh, what did families do? Well, for a while they, they did accumulate wealth, and uh, this was uh, buoyed by the housing price boom of uh, going forward until 2006, and then uh, suddenly the housing market collapsed, and so did uh, net worth. How much of what, of what you would describe as your financial condition is due to decisions that Neil Gabler made, and how much of it is due to outside circumstances beyond your control? That's a, that's a great question, and, and I want to take responsibility. I don't want to put everything off on these larger financial forces. I chose to become a writer. This is the most financially perilous profession that one can possibly imagine, except possibly being an actor. Um, you know, I chose to live in New York City because I thought I needed to be close to magazines and, and publishers that I needed for my writing career. So I did that. Uh, and New York is expensive. Um, you know, I chose to have two children. You know, children are expensive. I made the choice to send them to expensive colleges. So those were all choices that I made that had serious financial consequences. But again, those choices were what I call life. So many young people today are told, find your passion and follow it. It sounds like that's what you did. That's exactly what I did. I followed my bliss. And I'm happy I did. So, you know, I, I accept responsibility. On the other hand, since roughly half of Americans are suffering the same sort of financial fragility I'm in, we can't say that they're all imbeciles. What we have to say is that there are forces beyond our control. Let me ask you a couple of other questions about personal decisions you made. Absolutely. You brought it up yourself. The decision to live here, we're in East Hampton. People think, living in the Hamptons? That's a really expensive part of America. You know, when people hear that I live in the Hamptons, the first thing they say to me is, oh my gosh, you live in the Hamptons. 
What they don't really understand is that there are two Hamptons. There are the people who live here full-time, as I do, who are not wealthy. And there are the people who come here during the summer who are. So, yes, I do live in the Hamptons. And when I bought this house, um, you know, I could afford it. It wasn't exorbitantly expensive. Uh, I was able to afford it for a very long time. This is all cedar, but you can see how many shingles are, are missing right, here. Right, right, These days, though, the house has fallen into disrepair. It's in desperate need of a new roof. Floorboards are rotting. It has not seen fresh paint in many years. If I had $100,000, I could, could probably I could probably get yeah. it done. Yeah. Did you ever think about moving to a less expensive part of the country? We did, and we've, we've talked about that. But here's the catch-22 of that. If we were, once the recession hit, you know, the house lost its value, as it did for, you know, most Americans. So now the house is deteriorating, it's lost its value. So if I had the resources to fix up the house to sell it, I wouldn't need to sell it. <laughs> That's the catch-22. I am a financial illiterate, and financial illiterates pay a heavy price for their financial illiteracy. Gabler is not using the term financial illiteracy loosely. It's a phenomenon economists say is a key factor in the current fragility of the middle class. We measure financial literacy by looking at basic financial knowledge. We are experiencing much more complex financial markets, much more complex financial products than in the past. And the, the knowledge of people has not kept up. Half of America will have to compromise on their dreams. There's one statistic that I cite in the piece from a USA Today survey, which I think is fascinating. And that survey determined that a middle-class existence in America would cost $130,000. A year. A year. The median income in America is somewhere around $50,000. So a middle-class existence was more than two times as great as the median income. And what that tells you is that the face of financial fragility is the face of the college-educated as well as the, those without a high school diploma. You know, it's the face of, you know, white America as well as the face of minority Americans who obviously suffer much greater. This is an equal opportunity situation. It affects so many of us. It's a great sadness to think that people feel compelled to give up their dreams of what they thought a modest middle-class life would be. But they have. They have. Even I have. And today's podcast is titled Shed to Tiny House Conversions 2018. The live stream number is 619-768-2945. And um, I titled that audio piece, um, Why People Go Broke. And uh, if you talk, basically the interview was uh, a guy that lives in the Hamptons, New York, a place that uh, people, you know, I mean, Martha Stewart has a house in the Hamptons. Uh, wealthy people go, but, you know, read, you know what, we probably need to redefine wealthy we really need to redefine wealthy um just because 
you live in a big house or even a mansion, have a BMW or Mercedes or even a a Rolls or a Bentley, uh, and you live in a uh, so-called prestigious zip code, you might not, and the appearance, the aesthetics says you're wealthy. In reality, most people, particularly in the United States, are broke. That big house and mansion is mortgaged. Your BMW or Bentley, you have a, a, a serious monthly car note payment that you can't get sick, none of it. So you, you really need to, and I think that's what's happening right now in the Western in Western countries, particularly the United States, people are reassessing and redefining what wealth is. You know, if if, if you have all these so called trappings, and this is what really the bankers have sold people. Bankers have sold people if you have these particular trappings, you know, a house, the car, even socially. You know, they're, they're young. Let's see people that are just starting to date. If the, let's say some guy, he could be in his teens or early 20s. If he hasn't, he doesn't have a car. A lot of women, a lot of American women are not going to date you. <laughs> they're not going to get on that bus or, or metro. You know, so you get a car and you're in debt. The typical person. And then, you know, you uh, if you want a so-called nice place to live in the city, that could be that man. All that stuff is a recipe to kill. I have a friend of mine that I went to high school with. He died uh, less than two years ago. He died at fifty-eight. His rent, Topsy says, died of a massive heart attack. No, not, this is the It's My House version of that. The heart attack was the, the massive heart attack was the symptom. Of course, he couldn't do anything about it because it was a massive heart attack and he, he passed. The real cause, once again from the It's My House point of view, of what killed him the root cause was the $1,750 a month rent he was paying. It wasn't even a mortgage payment. The rent they was paying. Couldn't afford to get sick. 17, 17, I can afford four houses. At least the kind of houses I like to buy for $1,750 a month. $1,750 a month. I can also lease two Rolls Royces for that and still have money put in my pocket. So we really need to redefine wealth. So one of the ways that we, this is one of our proper centers for two, man, our primary proper centers for 2018 is shed to tiny house conversions, but we won't be calling them tiny houses. I'll get into that probably in another podcast. Uh, in any event, let's, um, 
Let, let's get to the audio on these conversions right now. Because, you know, redefining wealth is you really don't have to get, get in, I mean, give your 30, think about it now, a 30-year mortgage. How about a 30-month mortgage or no more mortgage at all? Hello there. Uh, we kind of wanted to show you some in a series of videos uh, how we're going to take a portable building that can be bought anywhere and turn it into a living space. Uh, we got our building at Bald Eagle Barns in Cave City, Arkansas. If you're living anywhere near Arkansas, they are the best. They're the cheapest and they're the best. Uh, they beat that Dirksen hard times, the cook, uh, all the others. Anyway, they're good people. Uh, anyway, this building is a 10 by 16 with the high barn, meaning it's got a loft on each end, uh, plenty of headroom. It's, this is the normal size. So, I mean, I'm six foot tall. I've got my boots on. Yeah, I know I look goofy. I'm wearing boots and shorts. Anyway, I don't even have to worry about it. hit my head. I could, I could talk, you know, that goofy. And uh, anyway, there's a loft just above the camera there. Oh, I suggest the camera. She's kind of shy. She don't want to be in the picture. Anyway, don't bother me. Anyway, this building, it's got, it's solid. It's, it's 10 by 16. Uh, you can get them any way you want. They're rent to own. I'm not I'm not doing this video to plug just plug Baldio Barnes. It, you can do this with any portable building as long as it's built pretty good. This these walls are built just like normal houses because 16 inch centers, two by fours. I mean there's double two by four top uh, deal there. I'm no carpenter. I'm no fancy remodeler or whatever, but. Uh, with just a bunch of rednecks in the wood, and, and actually my little girl, uh, nine-year-old, came up with the idea of turning one of these into living space, and you could take it to any level you wanted to. We're just going to mainly have uh, like a couch, chair, and beds and stuff in here uh, for our older boys, and uh, you can do whatever you want to. You could put a shower in one corner, you could uh, put uh, your kitchen in another. They make these sizes, all different sizes. This works for us because we kind of got bad credit and not any money. And so we paid the down payment and now we're gonna make a $120 payment on this. And it worked out a whole lot easier than building an addition. And uh, if for some reason we decide to move, we can take it with us. So we're going to wire it first. Uh, we're gonna put like, Two plug-ins on each 16, that's 16 foot, so I'm going to put a plug-in over there, plug-in over there. One for the, uh, the we're going to put a air conditioner and a window, and so we're going to have a plug there for that, and I'm going to run a circuit just for that. But uh, I'm going to have two on this side. Make sure to keep it still, see. And then uh, we're going to put one plug-in for the loft. And then probably one plug back here. And I told my wife, now is the time to do the plugs because it's a lot harder after you put on the wall and all that. 
But uh, we're going to basically throw, uh, start the video every so often as we're progressing to our deal. But basically, uh, we got drill holes, two or two before's, the runner wire, and uh, we're going to have our plug ins. We'll nail those plug ins in. And then after that, insulation. And then after that, we're going to put um, what is the OSB. Uh, it's actually cheaper than uh, uh, paneling and stuff. We're going to put OSB, uh, I think it's 7 or half inch or something like that. You, you could do anything you wanted to. I don't like sheet rock to reason I'm not using sheet rock. But uh, that stuff's pretty, it's, OSB is pretty good because it'll be void in here. And uh, we're going to insulate the top and everything too. We're going to build like little tables and stuff up in the lofts for the boys to uh, put like a, a stuff on, you know, knickknack radio or whatever. And there'll be stuff in here. And it's about like anything, you know, it's a square building. You use your imagination. It's not here, therefore you can build it there. You know, if you wanted to, to build a wall right here, you could build a wall by just, you know, taking two before and going down, like right here. And if you get one of these buildings in your area and it don't have a loft, as you can tell, it's not hard to do. You just take a two before here, run it across, run it across, and run there's four under here, and then you put plywood up on top of it. And it's made it pretty simple. And one of these buildings could be built, but the startup. Um, amount is what got us, you know. We needed something pretty quick. And, uh, you know, this one's got the metal roof, and uh, we, we really like that. And I hope you like the videos to come, because uh, we're going to enjoy doing this. Bye. Okay, the clarity on that wasn't uh, what I wanted it to be, but anyway. Um, you can go to YouTube and there's a gazillion, well, not maybe a gazillion, but a lot of videos on uh, shed to uh, whatever you want to call it, conversion. Some people call it shed to tiny house conversions. Yeah. Facebook websites on it. Other options that you have would be um, go buy yourself a barn. I, I ran into somebody in Ohio some years ago. They bought a barn at an auction for like 200 bucks. Now, you can take them to it. Now, what they did with the barn was they deconstructed it and then sold off the wood uh, and other stuff. So they, you know, basically they invested. So they turned the $200 into, you know, whatever money, amount of money they did after they, you know, broke the barn down and sold off, you know, the wood and other parts that were, the other stuff that was maybe in the barn. Um, but you know, buy a barn, buy a barn, and then um, and uh, you know, if it's not in too bad a condition, renovate this thing where you can um, matter of fact, the same people that friends of the people that um, uh, bought the barn, I, I stayed at uh, their place. Uh, out in Ohio and uh, it's a rural area. That's less than a thousand. 
not too far from Zanesville, about 15 minutes outside of Zanesville, Ohio. Uh, nice little rural areas out there. But anyway, uh, they had a, I would say, man, how many acres did they have? They had about five acres. And they had a regular-sized house on five acres. And um, I, we had a little B&B. Well, they had a little B&B bed and breakfast arrangement. Um, so I, I stayed there. And, you know, just a regular house. Had breakfast with them in the morning. And then, now, talk about, man, if you want to learn about prosperity, go hang out in the country. Country folks know something. Um, they anyway on the five acres, regular size house. The wife, her sewing room, her sewing room was a house. Her sewing room was a regular size. I would say it was at least a thousand square feet. From just outside of it. Looked like a regular house. If you step inside, she converted that house into her sewing room. And the husband, his workshop, I mean, then you see a barn. You step inside the barn, and that was his workshop. <laughs> the barn. So a sit now. I'm sure they got, I mean, they got, because people in this neck of the woods, they get stuff, they either create it, uh, because some neighbors that they introduced me to, like, like they're right beside them, they were on 15 acres, and they built, um, they had a little cabin, which a lot of people call a tiny house these days, and they lived in that while they built, I guess, their dream house. And they had a stock. I didn't even go, I didn't even see the whole 15 acres. But like I say, you know, get get yourself, you, don't know, what do you call it? Craigslist. Put in barn. See what you can pick up a barn for. Um, that's where the opportunities are. Like I said, we're, and we're going, I guess, during 2018, but redefine wealth. Redefine wealth. And, and, and wealth, if you got to go into debt in the hot, that's, that's not wealth. So in any event, for 2018, our goal is essentially to produce one to five, like I say, it, I'll, I'm going to try to stop using the term tiny house. I'm just using it right now for convenience because once you use the word house, um, in most cases, then you know you gotta put it. You gotta go by code. So we'll be doing um, five to ten shelves a day, five to ten shelves a day, five to ten studios, or man caves, or she sheds. Um, They'll look like tiny houses, but that's not what we're calling. But um, in any event, uh, like I say, I would say today, if you listen to this podcast, go get on what we call it Craigslist. 
go to Craigslist and then see see who's selling the barn. You know, not not a new barn, but see who's selling. You know, and, and not a metal barn or anything like that, but see who's selling barns out there. Then look up auctions. You know, see who's selling. You know, barn auctions. And you'll be amazed at, because now if you can't live tiny, get yourself a barn. You know, if you want to, like say, a friend of mine, she bought a barn for $200. If you feel that you have to live large, you know, get a barn at an auction and pimp it up. But Whatever you do. Now, that's what I call creating wealth. But if you got to go and get a mortgage and be worried about your what, credit scores and all that, uh, to, to get that in, you'll, you'll stay broke. Anyway, 619-768-2945. Um, like I said, our goal for 2018 is to... Um, within six months, um, produce one to five buildings per day. And in order to do that, uh, uh, we got just some pleasant steps. Uh, have two crews of nine. So before we go to the phone lines here, um, I'm going to play. Um, and this has been, I think this was on, this guy's got like over 4 million hits off the audio I'm about to play. I used to call it nine friends, but then after I listened to the audio recently again, there were nine trucks. So more than likely in those nine trucks, they had more than nine people. So I figured there was anywhere from, let's say, 12 to 18 people. In any event, I'll play this and then we'll go to because this is how we're going to achieve the the putting together the the one to five houses per day. I say some shit to y'all that uh, I seen yesterday that made me smile, but it hurt me to my heart. There's a house next door to me that's been abandoned, and uh, the yard, the grass, high as hell, and everything. There's a couple of abandoned cars out there beside the house. Well, yesterday I get off work about 7 o'clock. A Mexican guy pulled up. He said, these your cars? I said, no. He said, I just bought this house, man. I said, all right, that's what's up. He was like, you know whose cars these is? He said, no. He said, well, I bought the house, not the cars. Okay, I'm like, cool. I'm thinking he's just coming to look at the house. I go back in the house, do a little straighten up. I swear to God, I walk back at the house. Now, I'm getting off about 7.20. It's fucking Nine Mexican trucks just pulled up. They got fucking beer, lights, and shit, right? So I'm like, what y'all finna do? He said, we finna fix this house. I said, what kind of crew you got working after 7 o'clock? He said, these my friends. The fucking house is fixed this morning. They went in there and drywalled that fucking house. Wow. 
I just left out of there. It was a fucking abandoned house. That bitch looked new this morning. Whew. It was an abandoned fucking house. And it looked new this morning. It's an old African proverb. Many hands make light work. I just don't think they're better than us. I just think we won't do nothing together. Wow. You're not hearing what the fuck I'm saying. It was an abandoned house yesterday at 7 fucking 15. That bitch is new this morning. He bought a tax lien house. I can't wait to see what they do. I can't wait to see is one family going to live in there? Is they going to... I'm going to get to know the motherfuckers. You best believe me when I make some money, I'm going to do it. I'm going to bring us together. And I'm not fucking with a lot of people. What's up, fam? I'm about to make me a quick Res the Ruler video. Remember uh, the video I made about the Mexican house next door uh, and how they got it together? And one day, I cleared this with them. But check this out. When you put the energy out of the universe, it agrees with you. Remember I told you you put those disagreeable forces, the disagreeable forces will respond. Now I'm going next door, and I needed to cook some macaroni for my Christmas gathering. Now I got one kitchen. And it ain't big enough. Watch this. This is my Mexican Mexican family next door. Like I said, I got this cleared. They leave the door open for me to come in here and cook. You understand me? They left the door open. They gone. I don't know when they coming back. I'm in their house, cooking, and they up macaroni. Oh, by the way, they did this in one day. Me, cooking my macadoses, and they up it. Name of my organization is La Familia. So when I say one God, one people, love don't judge, period. But I'm right fist up your dig. I mean it. In here, in the hella black, hella proud shirt. Shout out to Ron Green. In the Mexican house, almost 4 million shares, views on Facebook. Made it the world star hip hop. I'm in the house by myself. Beautiful family. Come on, man. And asked her, could I make a video? She said, sure. My house is pretty. I love to show it off. Before I get started with this video, I just want to personally thank the brother Fred Hassan Powell of the Morale Facebook page for sharing this social political cartoon, which is currently displayed in this video. I always big up brothers who are artists like him, my man Will James, Alex K. Art, Chris Miller, and others, because their pictures speak volumes. They don't have to say one word because, as they say, a picture is worth a thousand words. In fact, 
I want y'all to take a good look at this picture, which shows a brother with his hat flipped to the back, telling the bald-headed brother that he's hungry as fuck. When the brother attempts to hand him his own fishing rod so he can get some fish on his own, he gets verbally assaulted. No, nigga, I want some fish. Fuck out of here with that coon shit. Man, if you look closer, you'll see that the brother that says he's hungry got a fresh pair of Jordans on his feet. And once again, I want to thank you, Fred, for sharing that photo because it is a perfect warm-up for what I'm getting ready to bring up next. Look. Last week, I had to stop past a gas station, and when I went in, I took a quick glance over to the newsstand, and I saw the Washington Post. The first thing that caught my eye was something that you normally don't see on the cover of a newspaper, which was a few straggling pants sagging brothers sitting on a stoop of a building outside. I didn't have the time to read the paper in the gas station because I had to fly but I checked the article online when I got home, and I was just flabbergasted. I want you all to check it out for yourself in the description box. It is the December 9th edition of the Washington Post, and the front cover story is a look back at the riots which took place in Baltimore this past April following the death of Freddie Gray. The Post took the time to interview a few of the residents and get their personal take on how things have been and has any positive change comes to the streets of Baltimore after the riot. And one of the brothers that they interviewed was a young man that was out there on the streets peddling drugs from time to time, and he stated that he ended up finding out shortly after the riot that there were a few storefront apartments that were up for sale and that they were only selling for just $5,000 a piece. He then said that when he ran the idea of getting together and investing in the neighborhood past several brothers that he was out there selling drugs with on the streets, all of them told him no. And see, this goes to what brothers like myself, Sean James, and many others who are right here on YouTube have been telling y'all about this modern Negro. Okay, This Baltimore brother that was interviewed by the Washington Post had a great idea and the right frame of mind to purchase this storefront property while the price is extremely low. But the rest of the Negroes that are around him ended up dragging him into the quagmire of apathy that surrounds the Negro landscape. Shit, dude! Get that bitch on your face, you do That bitch good, nigga! Oh! Oh! Beat our motherfucking ass! Look, the main spot that this brother was looking to purchase had five rooms between both of the upstairs levels. And it just needed a little bit of furnishing. These spots could have easily been rented out to tenants or used as cheap housing by family and friends that could have worked a legitimate business out of that storefront. The Negro just don't get it. Because the more legitimate storefronts, strip mall shops, apartments, and tenements you own would lessen the police targeting you. Because then you could do what the foreigners and white folks that own these places do which is hire the police to work security at your properties and places of business. Why do you think they don't go upside the heads of these foreigners? 
because they stepped to the police officers and let them know that they have work for them. These foreigners and white folks that own and run these storefronts hire the cops, and if they don't pay them with cash, they give them free merchandise and meals on the house, so they in turn look out for them. And half these cops do moonlighting security at these places, even when they are on duty, because all they got to do most of the time is just drive through with a squad car or do a quick foot patrol right near the business or apartment housing units that are being rented out. This is why they don't give the Chan family or any Chinese youngster any problems when they see them in the hood by their dry cleaners. This is why they don't bother Mr. or Mrs. Akbar or any Arab kids that they see near the gas stations they own. This is why they don't mess with Miss Yi or any of her grandkids that are close to the nail salon she owns. Because they take a small percentage of the proceeds and pad the local policeman's pockets. And see, your typical foolish Negro that would challenge what I just told you will say, well, see, you insinuating that we got to bribe the police for them to stop brutalizing us. But they, like most, don't know anything about capitalism. It is a game of economic musical chairs. I just gave you the analogy when I mentioned all the foreign families that own all the storefronts, strip malls, and rental properties. Who is the only one who is left standing up with no businesses or property to speak of when the music is done playing and the cops roll through the neighborhood? That's us yapping back and forth when the music stops and they tell our loitering asses to get moving or catch a bruising. That's us walking around with sagging pants and glow-in-the-dark fluorescent color wigs like this sister that you see right here tossing rocks during the riot last April. Now, she's throwing rocks and expressing her anger and frustration, but she has a fresh weave on top of her head, which helped pay some of the officers that broke Freddie Gray's back. So who is the sellout and coon, black folks? And think about it. If you own some of those storefronts and control the flow of unlaundered, legitimate-made currency that comes through those areas, you can do your illegal dirt all day long without that much harassment from the local authorities. You might draw attention from a few alphabet gang organizations like the DEA, FBI, and others, but the local guys aren't going to pay that much attention because you're helping them pay bills and you're putting food in their stomach. And since I brought up the subject of illegal activity and you pan-sagging clowns love to talk about how gangster you are, why don't you do what some of the Irish, Italian, Jewish, and Polish immigrants your dumbass keeps trying to emulate did by legitimizing some of your hustles and using the same police force that chases you around the neighborhood as a shield. See, most Negroes will try to tell you that we are always at the end of a nightstick or baton or getting showered with bullets just because we are black. But ask yourself a question. Why aren't that many Ethiopians and West Africans getting mollywopped and punished to the extent that many so-called African Americans are in the U.S.? Remember, they're just as black and sometimes way darker than us. But why are there fewer cases of them being brutalized and killed by the police, like we saw with Amadou Diallo or Abner Louima, both of which took place in New York? Why so few cases compared to us so-called Afro-Americans? It's because they're smart enough to own businesses, restaurants, furniture stores, parking lots, etc., and pay the cops to look the other way so their fellow countrymen aren't harmed in any way. That's the logical thing to do. But you can't tell this Negro from America that. 
because you're still living off the backwards principle and creed of entitlement, which these liberals drafted up for us long ago. Instead of assessing this situation from a global perspective and seeing that everyone else seems to be purchasing everything around us so they can live comfortable lives and keep us at a position of marginalization as opposed to putting themselves in that boat, the Negro man and woman in the U.S. will counter it by saying, See, I object because my tax dollars pay for the police not to harass me. No, they don't, you imbecile. Especially after Uncle Sam rapes their paycheck just like he rapes everybody else's. Now, your pro-whack movement pseudo-black nationalist leaders will call me a coon for telling you this, but this is something that they know firsthand. They also know that you more than likely won't view this phenomenon from all angles because you're still under the influence of the can't-we-all-just-get-along-flavor Kool-Aid most black folks drank after the post-civil rights movement era, thinking that all the bigotry-enhanced physical assaults and beatdowns we took during chattel slavery and Jim Crow had an exclusive cutoff date to them which is why every single year one of these highly publicized police brutality incidents takes place. There's some dumb Negro that says, I don't believe that in 2087 this is still happening to black people. Yeah, it is, and it's going to keep on happening in 2088 if you don't adopt a different way of thinking, dummy. Your pseudo-black nationalists won't tell you that you are mostly to blame for this continually happening because they want you to keep feeling sorry for yourself and attend more lectures and debates where they argue over whether or not a woman is God or which master teacher's philosophy is better to follow. But I'm here to tell you right now, black folks, that we don't need to attend a gazillion seminars travel with a million other jugheads to commemorate the anniversary of a march that never led to mass black improvement, or study the teachings of some philosophical doctor with 10 degrees to find a solution to our problem. This brilliant brother from Baltimore that was interviewed in the December 9th edition of the Washington Post, who more than likely didn't even finish high school, just gave us the answer. And if you're wondering why I titled this thing Ballin' on Baltic Avenue, I did so as a way of saluting one of my grandfathers. See, long ago when I was a very little boy, he taught me how to play Monopoly. I was about seven years old, and I was all geeked up racing around the board to buy Boardwalk and Park Place. And he said, go right on ahead. He let me do it and said, I'll just buy a Baltic, Mediterranean, Oriental, and all these other properties that you aren't even thinking about. So as the game went on, and I only owned Boardwalk, Park Place, and Pacific, I think, he had all the other properties, the railroads, the waterworks, the electric company, and a whole bunch of hotels and houses on all of them while I was looking silly. And I ended up having to sell what I owned and wait for that $200 paycheck once I passed go. Once it finally set in, that I lost the game, he chuckled and told me, son, you got to own what's in the ghetto before you walk around the block. And that lesson that my grandfather Dave, rest his soul, taught me still applies to this very day. Ownership is a universal language, no matter what culture or ethnicity you come from, because it regulates the sort of relationship you're going to have with most of the people around you.
Okay, while that was playing, uh, and I'm opening up the phone lines right now, I had uh, I was on Craigslist uh, looking for bonds. We, uh, matter of fact, we had to do a podcast on that, redefining wealth. But in any event, um, 2018, uh, we're going to be creating wealth by essentially uh, taking sheds, barns, well, not barns, unless they're small ones, really small. Everything we're going to do, the main thing, it'll be portable. It'll be portable. Now, once you get it, you can do what you want with it. But we're basically getting we're getting portable sheds and we're converting them into different strike type of well, we're gonna convert we're basically gonna do a basic conversion and then whoever gets it, whatever you wanna do with it, whatever you wanna call it, that's your business. But we're going to get we're we're going to be doing one to five, producing one to five of these. Uh, our goal within six months um, is to produce on a consistent daily basis, no less than one, ideally five um, of these conversions daily. Um, I guess you can might you probably call us shed customizers. Seven seven three, your mic is open. Good morning, sir. How are you? You know, I'd like, fine, fine. I'd like, I'd like you to do me a favor. That young man that just spoke, I'd like to get his phone number if you have it. Uh, you know, I don't I have ever, that. I, I need to track him down because I, I got B, Big B. Kell. That's all I see on, what do you call it, um, um, YouTube. But I, I know he lives somewhere in the D.C. metro area, but I'm... I haven't been able to find an email address, but I am trying to get him on this show. Yeah, because we need his phone number because he would be a good person to uh, go around the country advertising what we're talking about. Because that man is telling the truth about vested interest in the system because it's a capitalistic system. It goes back to having that vested interest. And he's trying to get these people. And I think he'd be a good person to have on a meeting that we're talking about that will motivate some people to get involved. I think he's right on point. Right on point. If you can, find that number for me, and I'd appreciate it. Because when I have a summit, I have a summit every year, I'd like to have him one of the speakers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are blocks. Uh, I haven't been to Chicago in a long time, but there are some players. Uh, Baltimore is one. Philadelphia is probably another one. Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Detroit. There are urban cities that, I mean, if you got the money, and it doesn't take a lot of money. If you put together, I know at one time, if you put together like ten, fifteen thousand dollars, you can buy a block of a block of houses. Yeah. Um and it's probably still like that in some urban cities. Now, the thing is, you know, to bring those houses up to code um, and to build new structures on those vacant lots, you know, that's when your costs can get astronomical. That's why I like the rural situation. 
You can go rural yeah. and just buy you some acreage. And yeah. um, where the zoning is more, you know, you can put up a five a $10,000 house. Sure you can. You know, um, uh, but uh, in a place like, uh, like say, I haven't been to Chicago in a long time. Chicago, you can probably uh, go online and buy, I've seen some buildings as low as $6,000. In Chicago now, I, I you know what there was a guy on Na, Naima's show live stream two Saturdays ago. I got to see if we can get him on here. The thing about now, based on what I remember from the podcast, because I don't live in Chicago, never did business in Chicago, but just based on what he was saying, that um, the the unions. Um, now I I don't know if it's mandatory. In most places, if you want to renovate your own house, you can do it. Um, but it, it sounded like, and that might be that way in Chicago, plus you would know, but it seems like a lot of the people that are in the unions want to even get on, get in on, reno, you know, people renovating their homes. So, plus, look at that, you know, just for, if a person wanted to put a deck on their house, or put a roof on their house. And can you can you still do that yourself? Sure, you can. If you wanted to, do that. All you have to do is go out town and get a permit. Okay. I've done it. I've done it many a time. Many, many a time. Good. And you see right. the opportunity. The opportunity to lies right before us. It just takes a group of us to put together the money to actually mm-hmm. buy the product needed to uh, upright upright a uh, living quarters, and we get a permit, and they, you're going to get the, living, uh, the code of what you have to do to, to do that. But I'm on the same page that you are. I believe that we should do the rural areas rather than in the city. Because if it's, it's less expensive. It's less expensive, yeah. Because I was listening to that other young man early on was talking about where he lived, New York. If you live in New York, you know, I, well, right here, right here in the suburb of Chicago, it's a beautiful home, but they are so expensive, the average person can't own them. Give me a little bit of story about myself. I I bought my first house in 1963 here in Chicago. And I was in business for myself. But I missed the mark because I thought I was pretty savvy on making an investment. So I bought me six, uh, I bought six semi-tractor trailers. And in that process, I bought uh, a couple, I bought a nightclub at one point, 1980. Then I turned around after my partner that was running the nightclub wanted to go into this dope business. I decided that I didn't want to do that one because my license was, was at stake. So I closed it, and I kept on trucking. But I lost a son in 1991. You may have seen that on my website. And I took the poisonous chemical that he and his, he and his partner uh, inhaled, and I took it to OSHA. And from that point, I had to, well, I didn't have to, but I shut down my uh, 
business that I had, another lounge that I bought my brother to run, that down. And I went home and started to do the research on a capitalistic system. And there was so much information that I, it took me about a year. So I shut that, I was selling off my equipment, selling off the truck. I sold the, I sold the garage that I had purchased to house my trucks and work on them. So that caused me to understand a better, give me a better understanding about capitalism. Knowing that you don't, you're not, you're not going to have anything coming if you don't have a vested interest. So I took one of my trucks, my my best-looking truck, of course, and I didn't sell it because the other four trucks that I sold were sustaining me to have a living while I do, while I did the research. I was sustained by selling off my trucks in the garage that I had bought and purchased. I sustained my living at a minimal cost because I wasn't working. So within that process, I saved my truck and went back to work. I believe it was in 1992. I went back to work, and I turned my semi that I was driving. I turned it into a miniature house with all the amenities in that truck. And I drove that truck for 35, that trucks and trucks like that for 35 years. But every time I trade up, I would take my miniature house with me and have it installed on the on the, on the miniature, the, the miniature house on that truck. And I installed that house uh, of, uh, on three different tractors. So when you talk about miniature housing, I know what that means because I lived in it. When I'd come into the city, I'd park it at a safe place and lock it up. But it's you don't need a whole lot of space for one person to live in comfortably. Because if I lived in for 35 years comfortably, I know other people can, can too if they so demise. But the reason I share that with you is because what you have actually talked about in the miniature housing and uh, and uh, how to get it done, and this man, these two people that you had on the show today, those two videos you had on the show today, hits the nail right on the head and about to buy the barn and selling off the stuff. How all of that comes into play when you're savvy enough to own, because I, as you know, that I just had open heart surgery. Yeah. Open mm-hmm. heart, open heart surgery. Along with the insurance plan that I had, I guess I didn't have the right one to cover all expenses. I'm still twelve thousand dollars in the hole. But I, I know I'm going to dig, I dig out of this hole shortly, because when you're not able to work for over a year. I have an income. Your money's supposed to be working for you, right. and your in, your investments supposed to be working for you. That's the reason why these people are, have the control of who we are, what we do, how we do it. But I, 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 
as you know, I've been talking on every conference call and every show that I've been on about an invest, a vested interest, and you see it on my website, that that's what I go around advocating and teaching people, that if your money is not working for you, you will forever be in poverty, period. There's no other way around it. Because living in the capitalistic system, you can't buy anything. You'll go in debt. Because look at all the stuff that you have to have if you're going to live in the rural area. If you're living in the right. rural area, you got to have you got to have an automobile. You got to have food. You got to have clothing. You got to have medicine. You can't get sick, as you just stated earlier. You 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 won't be able to actually live there for long because all of these things play. That you got to buy gas to run your automobile, or you got to have clothing, and you're not making any clothes. So you don't have a vested interest in making clothes so when somebody else. Then you got the holidays that piles in on top of you. Just like we just had a, a Christmas. A lot of us, the majority of us, celebrate celebrate Christmas. Now, your birthday and all of these things that come into play is to where you're satisfied or you're trying to impress somebody. All of these things come into play, but they cost money. And if you and you know, I go I go back to the uh, to the Bible, biblical stuff on some of this. And Finney Ecclesiastes says, "Money answers all things." Yep. It says it answers all things. So if you're a Christian person, all you have to do is just follow the the, the Bible. If you're a Christian person, if you're an atheist, you follow the Bible. Because a lot of people that are atheists know that that money answers all things. So you want to stay enslaved, don't have a vested interest. Do not make an investment and invest in a capitalistic system. And you will forever be a 30-year slave because you owe somebody a, a, a note on a car, clothes, uh, house, whether it be rented or owned, you will forever be paying out your income. So you have to have more of an income than you have expense. That's the way I've tried to live all my life, more of an income than expense. Now, I'll show you how stupid I was when I was a young man. I had... I bought a Cadillac when it was $7,000. I would pay buy me a Cadillac. And uh, every two years, I trade it in until so I trade it up until I got able to buy. Uh, I have two Cadillacs, one at home and one on my job for my uh-huh. wife. And, <laughs> and it was it was kind of funny. My wife made me mad one day and uh, because she had let her brother use her car because I gave her the new car and I kept the two-year-old car and I would just rotate them every two years. I come home, her car was gone. I said, where's, where's your car? She said, oh, my brother took it and went down south. I said, oh, okay. Then when I find out that he took her credit card and used that up and that was another bill I had to pay, I got mad, took the Cadillac, took it to the to the station and 
and uh, I sold it. And after selling it, I uh, went with one Cadillac. Then I went and bought her a brand-new Falcon. If you ever knew what a Falcon was back in the day in the 60s. I remember those. I remember those. And I took that home and parked that in the garage. She said, whose car is that? I said, that's yours. That's what you're going to be driving from now on. You don't have sense enough to drive a Cadillac. (laughs) Well, those are the kind of things that, how stupid I was at the time. But that money that I spent on Cadillacs, I should have been invested way back then in the 60s. I'd have been much, I wouldn't be $12,000 in a hole now just because I got sick. Had a heart attack, and I pity those people that have heart attacks, strokes, and stuff can't uh, elevate themselves. I have the mindset to elevate themselves with the best intention, and that's the reason why you've heard me say so many times: if you don't have a vested interest in a capitalistic system, you will forever be a slave. I like I like that service woman because that's that's what I have to add to it today, and that's what I do. Okay. Well, now, one of the things, as a matter of fact, uh, I got contact him today. Um, Melvin Harris, we had him on last week. Uh, the guy in Texas that bought, uh, converted the shed, now he gets $700 a month extra income. That's how you can get in 18 months. If you do that same thing just on one building, uh, within yeah. 18 months, you'll pay off that $12,000. And that's why I want to bring him on for the very first show of next year, which is just in a few days, the 2018, because that same strategy, like, like my mother's got to be first one, she can't work anymore. So that's the strategy. And, and then after the 18 months, that, that $700 can go in your pocket. You know, less than price oh, yeah. taxes once a year. You know, so yeah. that, that's, a, that's a real practical, and you were on that podcast when he was, when he was on it. So we're going to bring him back. But that, that's a simple strategy. And that's why, like, you know, um, uh, like you brought, you brought it up before, you know, uh, emergency housing, uh, transitional housing. You know, we do just one one a day. That's five a week, 20 a month. Yeah. So you, when you when, that's the way the, the era of, the nine to five being a sustainable paycheck uh, based on one paycheck and really two paychecks, depending on your lifestyle, those days are almost over. You're going to have you're going to have to get entrepreneurial. Um. You know, be it you know whatever it might be, Mary Kay Hamway buying a nightclub or something. But let, let's take this other caller here, um, three three six. Your mic is open. Greetings, brother L.A. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes, we can hear you. Greetings, greetings, brother Pleasant Stephens, and anyone else in your listening audience today. Uh, first day of Kwanzaa. Now, Brother L.A., let me ask you this. Have you gotten your shed? And if not, where are you getting it from uh, there in Oklahoma? And when did you say you were going to be there? I'll be there the 10th of next month. Okay. 
All right. Now, have have you gotten the shed already? And nope. But they're easy okay. to get, so I'm not worried about that. Okay. So you're gonna wait, and you're gonna uh, Craigslist there in Oklahoma. Well, there's a couple places I pass by on my way to Taft. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's a place in Muskogee, I mean, not too far because, you know, 15 minutes away. So that, that's the that's the easy part, getting them. I mean, I got the land. I, I got, you know, getting the, the sheds are easy. And uh, what I want to do is, and I'm going to document this and put it up on Facebook and YouTube. Um, okay. Because I'll be looking for, um, I want to, you know, get questions that people might ask. And uh, the least expensive ones are maybe ones that they took back. Those are the ones I'll inquire about first. And they'll deliver. Whereas if I go to, if I go on Craigslist, I've got to make arrangements, which is extra money, to have that, whatever that shit might be to pick it up and all that. So right. I'm going to people who retail this stuff and then see what they've taken back or see, you know, compare prices on new, old, and then, you know, that type thing. Okay. Yeah, they're easy to get. Those are easy to get. Okay. Now, that video, um, can you send me that video about the uh, shed? I was well, doing my best. There's a of on YouTube. Okay, look. Um, if you go on YouTube, there's, there's a lot of them on YouTube. All right. So what do I now. look up? Just put shed, shed. shed or shed conversions on YouTube, and okay. you'll have more views. You can spend the rest of the day watching videos on that. Okay, okay. I'm going to do that. That was like. The, the, um, I wanted another one, but that was like an 18. Uh, 18 minute video and that that probably was too big to to convert. So, uh, but there's a lot of good ones on there. Uh, and then it comes other aspects of it because um, some people have done this and they you know because it was in a long geographical location and zoning, so they 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 couldn't move into it or occupy it the way they wanted to. So, but I, I did all that stuff first. Um, you get the land where you can do what you want to do. That's the first. Um, that's the first step, and then then you organize a community. And um, like say the shelf. I mean the uh, the shed basically acts. It, it's a shell. It's a skeleton of what you want to convert it into. Mm-hmm. So that that's what we'll be documenting. So when we get the shit, and that's why I'm bringing that back. That guy Melvin, and hopefully he's available on the first day of uh, next year, 2018, which is in a few days, few short days. Um, because I want him to break down. He told us what he paid for, but we want we want him to break down the, um, you know, what kind of condition it was in. Uh, what kind of repairs that he had to make to do the conversion, that type of stuff. Because it's going to have to be insulated, 
You know, we're going to have these, you know, how much was insulation costs? Um, you know, what can, we're not going to put any of these on a, found, a permanent foundation because once you do that, then it, it goes from shed to real estate. We don't want it to be real estate. We want to own it outright. Whoever we sell it to, we want it to be out, you know, own it outright. So, Things like uh, what's it going to sit on while we're putting it on a, a temporary um, stand instead of a permanent foundation. Um, where are you going to put the bathroom? You know, the cost of doing this, that, or other. Like the, the video I played on here, uh, audio of it, uh, the guy who built the cabin for $3,000. No, was it $3,000? No, built it for $2,000. You know, so you're going to document all that. And, um, uh, Brother Elliot? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah uh, I think looking at what I've seen just yesterday, day before yesterday, when I was looking at uh, my nephew's uh, man cave, that uh, is a concrete floor in this command, uh, a man cave that was there as a garage. And now he's built everything up around it. And everything that he has, he and his wife, is uh, in this man cave pretty much, except, except that he has in the house and in the basement of the house where his uh, children and uh, their uh, wives and children live. Now, it's a true we can't put on a slab that's already built to the ground. Well, you can put it on a, a slab. Ma- yeah, you can we put it on put a slab. Yeah. Well, then, if we put these the tiny well, houses. The thing is, you know, like say, if you, uh, the thing is, I'm looking at in the model I'm looking at is, you, yeah, you can put it on a slab that's already there. It's just not, I don't want anything to be permanently attached, so if I want to move it, I can have a flatbed come and pick it up and go. See what I'm yeah, saying? but if you wanted, yeah, I understand what you're saying. But uh, what I'm saying is, if you wanted to move it, and it was attached to the slab, so that the wind doesn't get under it and blow it away. Oh well, yeah, then, you can uh, anchor it down. You know, yeah, you can anchor it down, and then uh, if you you know, but. You also have the option of, once again, um, you know, unanchoring it and moving it to where you want to move it. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I want to get cleared up. We can anchor it on the slab and then take those four bolts off of it because you'd have a bolt on each corner and move it when you get ready. Right. That's what I want to clear it on. Yeah. Because I know it's going to the typical, what they call house, okay, um, you can't pick it up and move it. Uh-huh. That's right. That's right. But we can anchor it on I the slab. I mean, more, more than likely the house that you're living in right now, you can't pick it up and move it. No, the one I live in, you can't pick it up and move it. You can't put it on the truck either. <laughs> right. See, that's what I'm um, saying. So that that's why yeah. I'm looking at you know making it so uh, you can 
pick it up and move. Yeah. Okay. And um, it, it won't yeah, be, um, you know, you can put it on, uh, you know, after you unclamp it and all that, you can put it on a flatbed and move it anywhere in the world that you want to. You can ship it by train. Uh, yeah. If it goes over, you know, a uh, cargo container. Uh, matter of fact, that's one of the things I ran on, on Craigslist this morning. Somebody was selling cargo containers for $1,700. And that, that's about the going rate. You can get cargo containers from yeah. sometimes yeah, less than way, that or even a little bit more. What I'm looking at, you can look, you can like my uh, like like my sleeper and everything was attached to the frame of my truck, and it was attached. But every time I traded trucks, I, I took it loose and said, "Put it, set it up on another truck." So that's what we right. can do with man cave and tiny house. Same thing, that that right. same process. And we're going okay. to offer classes on this because see a lot of people who. Um, who are part of uh, or who have come through, let's say, a homeless program uh, uh, through social services or whatever, and they get, you know, the social worker helps get them a new apartment. Happens all the time. Uh, Or a church. You know, happens Mm -hmm. all the time, but within three months, six months, definitely in less than a year, these people are right back at the shelter starting all over again. Yeah, and um, right. so what we want to do is offer classes on maintenance, and because see, a lot of people don't figure out, you know, you can spend as much on maintenance as it is on the actual house. Yeah, you can. A lot of people don't they, they don't they don't factor that in. So that's where um, if you get something smaller. Um, then you can, um, it, it's sustainable and whatnot. And then we're also telling people you got to look at the future. Like when you bought that house and well, you bought your first house at, at, at uh, what year? 1963. Okay. See, I, in 1963. I bought, I bought six um, houses since then. Okay. Now, what was the lowest price house that you bought in 63? The lowest price house I bought was uh, I bought a house in Over Indiana and I paid with three hundred seventy five dollars for it. Ooh, okay. Well, what was the most? <laughs> what's the most expensive house you bought in sixty three? How, well, how much was it? Yeah, the most expensive house you bought in sixty three. Oh, the house that I bought in nineteen sixty three was twenty one thousand. Okay, All right. it was a good three, number. All right, good number. Three good number. One of the things that we're going to be teaching, one of the things we're going to be teaching is the distinction between buying and building. Now, yeah. if you can buy something, let's say, I'm going to put a cap at twenty-five to thirty thousand. Um, if you're going to buy it with a mortgage. That's the trade range because at that at at that point you can probably make two house payments a month and pay it all ahead of time. 
Now we got a lot of people that are buying. You know, they're paying a hundred. They, they got a development going around the corner for me. Their houses start at two hundred thousand dollars. You, oh yeah. You won't yeah. live long enough to pay that off. I got a grandson that just bought one at two hundred six thousand in, in Alabama. No, that's, no, that's no, to me. To me, that's crazy. It, you know, it's better to go ahead on. That's why we're going to offer classes. You know, now I wish him luck and success and all that. But it sounds like yeah. he won't be able to get sick. He can't get sick. <laughs> he can't I get sick. To get is, he, it. Now, is he married? Yeah, he's married. They don't have any children yet. But, yeah, he's married. And his house is over $1,000 a month. Yeah, see. Yeah, yeah. At fourteen hundred dollars a month. My house in nineteen sixty three was one hundred and forty two dollars a month. And you say he's in Alabama? No, I'm sorry, he's in Georgia. He's in uh, Atlanta, oh, Georgia. Georgia. Okay. I find he'll oh, be here too. Yeah, I, yeah, he'll be here tomorrow. We're gonna do some podcasts, all, you know, all that as well, because a lot of people have moved. Wait, look, Atlanta was okay back when King was alive. We talking about late fifties, early sixties. All right. Yep. Maybe around when they did the Olympics in ninety four, you can probably pick up something. But now we we have to look at other areas. Matter of fact, we we you know what we need to um, in January also, uh, or maybe this week call them and set it up for January. Uh, the mayor, <coughs> uh, the mayor and the, and the city clerk. In Bulgy, Alabama. And the reason why I'm saying that, the mayor, at least when we talked to him, he moved from Los Angeles to Bulgy. Now, he's got 20 acres in Bulgy, Alabama, 20 acres of land. There's no way yep. he's going to buy 20 acres of land in Los Angeles, California. There's no way. If, if 20 acres is available in the city of Los Angeles, I don't want a place like D.C., 20 acres is not available for sale in in D.C., no Baltimore, no. Next thing is that their, um, their city clerk, she was somewhere up north and moved to Bulger, Alabama. You know, so for people that are starting over or getting started or if you like pleasant in the case that, you know, you had that surgery, you got $12,000 you want to pay off in, in the for you fortunate that it's not over a hundred and twenty thousand dollars. But even <laughs> if it was but even if it was the the strategy that 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 uh, Melvin Harris like said, I'm gonna call him today so we can get him on for Monday. I mean uh, the uh, not Monday, but uh whatever the first is. Uh January first of two thousand eighteen. Have him come on again and then break down what he did to generate seven hundred dollars a month additional income. From getting this share and and converting. And you know the other good part about that that you're talking about the tiny house that mm. you can get some income and you can still sell it to the person that you rented it to. Right. That's the beauty. That's the beauty of it. And then on top of that, you build communities and industry around it, is to where everybody have a vested interest. In their community, 
So you don't have to. Now, be you know what? About. I'm glad you said that because we're going to do some shows on that. I'm sure, sure several shows. If you want to do get get passive income, build communities, build them around people that need that emergency housing people, transitional housing people, people getting out of jail or prison, uh, homeless families. Build communities from those demographics, and you'll have a passive income to pay off debt. That's where I'm at with. And then when you look at then when you look at the the industry that you build around it, you can finance your school. You can, you can finance everything that a community has been financing around the country, and then you can leave income to your children. But until you build the until you build the industry, you're actually building on the contail on the on the uh, on the tail end of somebody else's investment. So everybody that buys a stick of butter, can you imagine how many sticks of butter was bought this Christmas, and people made a profit? And you can take that that profit and break it break it up a lot of ways. Because when I used to buy whiskey by the case, beer by the case, I made a profit on selling that stuff. And your profit yeah. is no less than your profit is no less than forty percent. All you have right. to do is just have a a volume of the product that you sell. You can't stay right. in business unless you're making forty percent. You gotta have forty percent of what you are uh, selling. You gotta have forty percent net profit of what you're producing. Well, see, we need to see. We need to calculate that and uh, what we're about to do with this. So, on that note, yeah. look, Pleasant, we're going to end it for today, but we'll be back tomorrow. Matter of fact, we'll, we'll pick up with the forty percent tomorrow. On that okay. note, everyone, everyone, have a good rest of the day. 